Thank you, Zach. Um, man, I don't know what it is. If it was the the music, uh, we just need to sing those songs again, like at the end. Um, or if it was the coffee that Zach gave me before service. Um, but my heart's beating really fast. Um, it, I don't know if you had something in there or not. Um, it could have been maybe the Holy Spirit during, I don't know, coffee, Zach's coffee, Holy Spirit. Um, but uh, seriously, I want to ask a question. Have, um, while you're turning in your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 2, have you ever gotten a phone call um, where you know you'll never forget where you were when you got that call? Maybe. There's one time in your life you got a call. That happened to me this past week. Um, Thursday afternoon, I was sitting in uh, Blair's office and uh, studying for this uh, passage that we're going to be looking at today. And um, my phone rings, and it was my wife. So I could either like jump around in excitement right now or cry. I don't know. I might do both. Um, but um, she's not like pregnant or anything. I'm just um, <laughs> when I when I answered when I answered the phone, um, it wasn't her. It was my six-year-old son, and he said he said, "Daddy," I said, "Hey, buddy." He said, "Will you come home and pray with me?" And I was like, sure, buddy. I was like, um, about what? And he said, I want to be a Christian. And I was like, <laughs> you know, like, I, I'm, I don't think I've ever left an office faster. Um, and, and so I, I made it home as soon as I could. I pull into the driveway, and he's like jumping around in the carport. And he's like, I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to be a Christian. <laughs> like, he's like super excited. Um, and so he's, he's been asking questions over the past few months. Um, and, uh, and me and Allie have been, been answering those questions and just being patient. We've been praying for him, for his salvation um, since he was born. And um, he started asking a lot, a lot more questions when he saw Walker get baptized a few weeks ago. You know, he's like, that kid's like close to my age. He's like a little bit bigger than me, but man. And he was really excited because he wanted to get baptized in the, in the creek too. But I was like, it's a little different than skipping rocks. Um, and so we, we were able to talk about baptism and, and stuff. And, um, and, and so the Lord has just been drawing him and been working on him. And, and so on Thursday afternoon, we got to have this amazing conversation in our living room um, and, and about like, case for like, what is a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? Why do you want to be a Christian? Uh, and, and, and who is a Christian? And, and, and then um, our little family of four got down on our knees in the living room, and um, we didn't lead Case in a prayer, like, because it's a personal relationship with the living God. And, and Case literally, I said, just, you, you talk, buddy. And, and he said, God, take my sinful heart and give me a new one. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> and I was like, faith like a child, you know, <laughs> like real simple, real straightforward. Um, and, and so as I was reflecting on that time, um, I, I asked Case a question that I think most adults have a hard time answering. Um, and he answered in a way that I've never heard an adult answer before. And the question is, what are you saved from? What are you saved from? And I, 
I was looking for the answer, God's wrath. I don't know why. I was expecting a six-year-old, you know, to understand or to say that, right? Um, but Case said this in his response. Um, I'm saved from Jesus. And I, w- I thought about it more later, and I realized he wasn't wrong. It's a very interesting concept. We're saved by Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus, from Jesus. And that sounds weird, but I want us to explore that tonight because the reality is that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God that we didn't have, like we, we couldn't absorb his wrath or we would have been undone. Jesus, he's going to come back and he's going to judge and, and those who haven't submitted to Jesus will experience his wrath. Uh, the late R.C. Sproul, longtime pastor, theologian, author, he wrote this. What do we need to be saved from? We need to be saved from God, not from kidney stones, not from hurricanes, not from military defeats. What every human being needs to be saved from is God. The last thing in the world the impenitent or the unrepentant sinner ever wants to meet on the other side of the grave is God. But the glory of the gospel is that the one from whom we need to be saved is the very one who saved us. God, in saving us, saves us from himself. That's from his book, R.C. Sproul's book, Saved From What? It's a really small book, really highly recommend it to you. Saved From What? Back um, where we come from, we have uh, this seven-mile hike that my boys love um, at Stone Mountain. And... um, there's one part of the hike where you get close to the waterfalls and there's this, um, there's this sign, right? On, on most hikes, like they might have a warning sign. And this sign is, is big and white with red letters. It's all caps. And this is what it says. It says, warning, area contains hazards associated with rocks, steep slopes and cliffs, injury or death possible. Stay on marked trail. And I, I wish I had that sign, like, on the screen tonight, just, like, the whole time during this message. Because that's what, like, I feel like Peter is doing in this passage, is he's giving us a warning. Just like the, this sign warns the hikers, like, I wanted to, to warn us tonight. As we venture into this text, Peter is, he's not very politically correct, okay, in this passage. We're going to be hearing about God's judgment God's wrath, God's condemnation, hell, punishment, and the final judgment, all of which are not attractive topics. We don't like to talk about them because we're creatures of comfort, and they are uncomfortable topics. And Peter doesn't shy away from proclaiming them because they are realities, and God knows that we need to hear them. And so, praise God that we're all here tonight, and and we're going to pray that he gives us ears to hear them. But I also want to warn us, as we walk through the text, we're going to be all over the Bible, all right? And so, if you do take notes, let's just stay in 2 Peter and jot down the the references. Don't try to be flipping back and forth in the Bible, unless you're just like super speedy when it comes to sword drills. Um, But last Sunday... When we were looking at the first three verses of 2 Peter, we learned that you can spot false teachers by their fruit. 
right? Mainly sex, money, and power was their motivations for teaching. We also learn that if you deny Jesus as Lord, you deny him as Savior. And we also learn in order for us to know how to spot false teachers and their heresies, we need to know the truth in order to spot the lie. Tonight, we're going to learn this, and basically in one sentence, it's the whole passage is about divine judgment, but God is just. And I love the song that we sang before, but God is just. He was just in the past, he's just right now, and he'll be just in the future. That is, in essence, if I had to boil it down into one sentence, what the takeaway is, but let's pray before we dive in to this passage tonight. Jesus, apart from you, we can do nothing. I can do nothing. I, I can't even speak right now without you putting breath in my lungs. And, and we can't even hear your words being preached unless you give us the ability to do that. And so right now, we just ask humbly that you would teach us. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would convict hearts, that you would make us sensitive to your word, that you would encourage some, and that you would draw some to yourself for the very first time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Second Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4, we're going to go through 10a. It says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of the judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of the defiling passion and despise authority. If I read that really fast and you were like, you're not even taking a break, Peter doesn't take a break. That's essentially one sentence in the Greek. So this is really a passionate Peter, right? When I was in college uh, at Appalachian State, I took a class called Logic. It was one of the most difficult classes I've ever taken to pay attention to. Probably because the professor was always barefoot and he looked like Einstein. But um, in Logic 101, you learn about conditional statements. If A equals B, and B equals C, then A equals C. Don't fall asleep. I promise this is relevant, okay? In our passage tonight, Peter is using an if-then argument all throughout. When I study a passage of scripture like this, um, I like to, to spread out each verse on a sheet of paper and just put a big space between each of them. And, and as I did that this time, I noticed that like, every single verse starts with like if, it seemed, if you look at verses 4 through 7, he uses that word very often. And then in verse 9, he comes to a conclusion and says, then. So you can break the passage down into two parts, essentially. Verses 4 through 8 would be A, the if statements, which comes from the past. And verses 9 to 10A are the B, or then statement, which represents the present and the future. If A is true, then how much more true would B be in the present and the future? 
If that's confusing, I believe it makes more sense if you walk through the text like this. Read verse 4 and then read verse 9. Read verse 5 and then read verse 9. Read verse 6 and then read verse 9. Read verse 7 and then read verse 9. And it would provide greater understanding to the passage. We're going to walk through it verse by verse tonight. Verse 4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So Peter uses the word for as a preposition that transitions from talking about false teachers among you to giving examples of divine judgment delivered in times past. One of the best quotes, uh, one of the best questions that we can ask any point in time when you're studying scripture, one of the best questions you can ask is, what does this text teach me about God? What is this this text teaching me about God? What can I learn about God from this passage? And we can learn from this passage that God is just. We, we, we learn this over and over again from Peter giving us examples of God's righteous judgment in the past. Why did God judge the angels? Well, because they sinned. What is sin? Simply, it is rebellion. The angels rebelled against God's authority and they wanted to do their own thing and therefore they got what they, de- they deserved. They were cast into punishment to await judgment day. And some might say, well, that doesn't seem fair. Then there's examples of God judging the whole world and destroying specific cities. And one person might argue, I thought that God was full of love. Our God is love. Our our God is love. Our God is love. He's full of love and mercy. How could he do this? Well, God's mercy and justice are not contradictory. Let me explain it this way. We see a lot of consequences for sin in our passage tonight. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And these wages are to be paid. So um, if you have a job, like you go to work, right? And anytime you go to work, you put in your time and your effort, and you expect to get something in return, right? What do you expect to get in return? Money. I need my moolah, right? I I need my money because I put in my time. I put in my, my work. I put in effort. I put in sweat. I expect to get money in return because you earned those wages, And if you didn't get them, what would you say? You wouldn't say anything? (laughs) That's not fair! That's not fair! Today, there seems to be no fear of divine judgment. In our culture, there seems to be no fear of divine judgment. The, the British agnostic Bertrand Russell wrote this. There is one very serious defect in my mind in Christ's moral character, and that is that he believed in hell. I do not myself feel that any person who is really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. But even if people do believe in God, because agnostics don't, then they think that the God is love. He's all love, and he, therefore he, pos- he couldn't possibly send anybody to hell where there's eternal punishment. Therefore, many people don't even believe that hell exists. A very successful businessman was talking with a pastor one time after he preached a message on hell, and this is what he said. The, he said to the pastor, you, you said that if we do not believe in Christ, we're lost and condemned. I'm sorry, I just can't buy that. I work with some fine people who are Muslim, Jewish, or agnostic. I can't believe that they're going to go to hell just because they don't believe in Jesus. In fact, 
I can't reconcile the very idea of hell with a loving God, even if he is holy too. The reality is we can't preach the good news of the gospel without understanding the bad news and what you're saved from. Pastor Jim Shattuck said, like it or not, God's condemnation is real and necessary because it's rooted in his justice. Peter preached on hell and divine judgment because he heard it most often from his master. Jesus taught more on hell than any other person before him. Jude, being a servant of Jesus, also warned people of hell and reminded people of God's judgment. In Jude 6, which is a great parallel passage to 2 Peter 2, 4, our first verse tonight, Jude says this, and the, God, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains until gloomy darkness, under gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day. Now, we're not going to dive in tonight into who these angels are or what they did because we would honestly need an entire sermon just to unpack these verses. But um, feel free to do some research um, for yourself. Ask your small group leaders all those questions. I'm sure they'll appreciate that. Um, but suffice it, <laughs> you're welcome. Suffice it to say, uh, the angels that Peter and Jude reference went outside of the boundaries of God, that God set them boundaries, and they went outside of those boundaries, and they rebelled against him. And so God's judgment is, res is reserved for those who hate him, who deny him and reject his authority, whether angelic or human beings. We know that Jude and Peter are not false prophets because they actually proclaim the coming of the day of the Lord and his wrath. You know, one of the fundamental differences between a true prophet and a false prophet is that a true prophet actually warns people of God's impending judgment, while a false prophet will not preach against sin or on the wrath of God. And since God did not spare rebellious angels who are superior spiritual beings than man, people would be foolish to believe that he would not spare rebellious humans. Peter uses Noah as an example of God's judgment in the past. Look at verse 5 for our next if statement. If he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Why did God judge the ancient world? because of their wickedness. Back in Genesis 6, 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And God brought judgment on the world by the way of the flood to purge the world of ungodliness. God in his grace preserved Noah and his family because Noah heralded righteousness. Noah wasn't righteous in and of himself, but he believed God, he trusted God, and so he heralded righteousness. Another word for preserved in this passage is protected. God protected Noah and his family. In the midst of this gloomy passage on divine judgment, we have this glimmer of hope. God judges the wicked but protects the righteous, and this would have to provide encouragement for Peter's original audience. Remember that they're experiencing, they're suffering under false teaching. <coughs> and let's be honest, like it, it, it provides encouragement for us today, for the church today. With the current state of affairs in our world, it, it's seemingly becoming more and more evil. It seems like 
evil's prospering. It, it seems like things are unsettled and, and th- things are uneasy and uncertain and we don't know what's going to happen next and, and, and holding on to truth is very dangerous and it seems like things are corrupt and, and everything seems to be unstable. But here, there's comfort. There's comfort in trusting that God knows how to preserve his people. He's able to protect. He's able to preserve. And he's patient. Even in God's judgment, we find patience. 1 Peter 3.20 says, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. This past summer, um, my family got to go on vacation for the first time ever, not to the beach or the mountains, but to out west, to Kentucky. Is that west? No, <laughs> north. Wet, northwest is something. Yeah. Anyway, we, we didn't go. Yeah, we went to Kentucky. That's where uh, the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum are. And if you've never been to the Ark Encounter or Creation Museum, highly, highly recommend it. It is incredible. Um, the Ark is a lot more massive than I ever anticipated, like, seeing in person. Um, and and our, my boys were just floored by it. But um, Answers in Genesis actually did it. Uh, they did a marvelous job of walking through this incredible piece of history. And you could spend days walking through the ark and reading all. If you read everything that was in there, it would take literally days. Um, and so one section actually said, they had this little plaque and it said, how long did it take to build the ark? And they had this like breakdown of the biblical passage and for Noah, and then it had like for the ark encounter. Um, it took way longer to, um, to build the ark for Noah than it did for the ark encounter. I don't know why, maybe like modern technology, tools and such. But the likely view is that it took Noah around 75 years to build the ark. And during that time, Noah preached of God's righteousness, which stands in stark contrast to the unrighteousness of his day. That's pretty patient. Like, if God was going to destroy the earth, and he gave 75 years of a man proclaiming that there is salvation, he was patient. You probably, do you think that Noah was, like, ridiculed for building the ark? Why are you building a boat in the middle of the land, old man? There's no water around here. And that it had never rained? That's crazy to think about. But Noah was definitely probably ridiculed. You think he was lonely at times? Like it's, think about our culture right now. Like it can be very lonely to hold to Christian values. You can feel like you're in the minority, right? Like, But godliness is not popular. It's just not. But in this passage, we learn that we should take heart because God preserves his own. God brought Noah and his family safely through the water because they believed God. And they entered into the ark and God shut the door. The ark door points to the person and work of Jesus. God had told Noah to build the ark with just one door. And when God shut the door, it pictured his justice and his mercy. The wicked world outside of the ark perished, but those inside were rescued. 
Even in judgment, God provided mercy. Jesus is the ark and the door of our salvation. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I am the door. Anybody who, who enters by me will be saved. Just as Noah's family went through that door to be saved, we too must heed the good news of the one door, Jesus Christ. Peter reminds us of God's judgment in Noah's day and of God's salvation of Noah's family. Those outside of Christ will perish, but those in Christ will be rescued. These passages teach us that God can be both merciful and just at the very same time. These are not contradictory. In Exodus 34, God reveals to Moses his character. And this is what he says. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed this. The Lord, the Lord, God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Listen, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So in this one passage, we feel the tension between God's mercy and God's justice. While God is slow to anger, he, he's not going to clear the guilty. Our faithful and loving God is always dealing with rebellious people. Peter uses another example of God's judgment in the past by reminding people of how God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We see God's mercy and justice mingled in this passage. Look with me in 2 Peter 2 uh, verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ash, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Why did God bring fire from heaven and burn the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? It was because of their ungodliness, because of their wicked sensual conduct and lawless deeds. Jude 7 is another parallel passage to verse 6 in 2 Peter. Jude says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual morality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Peter likewise says that God saved his judgment. He served his judgment over these cities, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly in the future. This is what the ungodly can expect will happen. In Matthew Henry's commentary a long time ago, he said this, See how God dealt with Sodom and Gomorrah. Though they were situated in a country like the garden of the Lord, yet if in such a fruitful soil they abound in sin, God can soon turn a fruit, fruitful land into barrenness and a well-watered country into dust and ashes. No political union or confederacy can keep off judgments from a sinful people. Sodom and the, and the neighboring cities were no more secured by their regular government than the angels by the dignity of their nature or the old world by their vast number. We should learn from the examples of old, from what God has already done. What a grace we have to have his word, that we can read it and learn from the past. This had to be a good reminder for Peter's audience because they were suffering they were suffering under destructive heresies from false teachers, and, and God, through Peter, is reminding his audience that he will rescue the righteous. Look at verse 7. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. The sensual conduct of the wicked that Peter's referring to can be found in Genesis 19. You can read that later. The men of Sodom were so consumed 
with homosexual passion that they were trying to break into Lot's house and take advantage of his visitors. And in his commentary on this passage in Genesis 19, R.C. Sproul says this, that Genesis 19, 4 through 5 is the grossest, most lurid description of homosexual sin found in the scriptures. These angels, disguised as men, appeared majestic and handsome, and the men in the town who burned with lust towards men came and surrounded the house of Lot. It is not hard to understand why Sodom is a synonym for homosexual sin. Little did the men of the town know that these two visitors to Lot's house were angels who God had sent to usher in divine judgment. God had mercy on Lot and his family, just as he had mercy on Noah. Listen to how merciful God is. Genesis 19, 15 through 16 says this. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. It's shocking to hear that Peter refers to Lot as a righteous man, considering that Lot wasn't righteous in and of himself. There were plenty of times where, where Lot was a, a coward, where he didn't protect, or it, it seems like he, he, he was very unloving towards his daughters. And you can read about that in, in Genesis 19. But despite his shortcomings, God describes Lot as a righteous man. Actually, three times in our passage in 2 Peter, the Holy Spirit inspires Peter to call Lot a righteous man three times because Lot was surrounded by a bunch of unrighteousness in his culture and it grieved him. Look at verse eight. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And in our culture today, we see and hear more lawless deeds than ever before. And we can't fully escape seeing and hearing evil, but we should run from godlessness or, or else we become more and more desensitized to it. So Lot perpetually being surrounded by lawlessness, it, it can dull your faith. And reflecting on, on Lot's reaction to the, his culture, I thought about our culture and I started to ask myself some questions. I want to ask you the same questions. These are self-reflective questions. Does the wickedness around me disgust me? Do the lawless deeds of others torment me like they tormented Lot? And let's be honest. Do you think you're better than Lot? Lot was considered righteous because he hated sin. Yes, he had his downfalls, but he hated sin in his own heart. He hated sin in his culture. Do you hate the sin that still lingers in your own heart? Do you remember that you too were once just as lost as any false teacher? As any person in your family or friend group that doesn't know Jesus? As any person in your workplace that doesn't know Jesus, doesn't have a personal relationship with do, do you remember that you were at once just like them. In Titus 3.3, 3, it says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, 
slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We must remember our hearts were at one time just as wicked and just as lost. I believe one of the the biggest differences between false teachers and true teachers is sensitivity to sin. When was the last time that you wept over your sin? Your own sin. When was the last time that you just wept over your sin? You may hate the overt sin that you see in the culture, but do you actually hate what's hiding in your own heart? We must not look down on others as if we were better than them simply because our eyes have been opened to the gospel. There's truly only one holy, just judge. His name is Jesus. It's not ours to judge. In Romans 12, Paul writes, Don't seek revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's mine to avenge, says the Lord. And all of the if statements in 2 Peter finally bring us to the conclusion in verse 9 where he says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. We're reminded of the context of Peter's audience from this verse. Those who've been saved by grace through faith by the righteousness of God, our Savior Jesus Christ, are facing trials. Peter doesn't stop to take a break in this passage. From verse 4 to verse 10, he says, if, 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 then the Lord knows how to rescue his own. God allows trials in our lives to strengthen our faith, to mature us and make us look more like Jesus. And just like God allows us to be tempted, yet he always provides a way out. One pastor said Peter knew his readers were getting frustrated and discouraged in their ongoing attempts to resist the false teachers. And so he encouraged them by reminding them of God's sovereign help for the righteous in times of trial and adversity. The end of verse 9 says that the Lord keeps the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. The unrighteous are those who reject the gospel. They reject Jesus. Verse 9 is a sober reminder of the day to come when every single person will stand before the Lord and will give an account for their life. I went to a funeral on Friday of a dear woman at the church where we came from. She was 96 years old. Greatest prayer warrior I've ever known. And she passed away. And she had to stand before Jesus, the one that she had communed with for so long, but she had to give an account for how she lived her life and the decisions she made. Hebrews 9, 27 says it's appointed for man to die once and after that to face judgment. Following death is one of two realities. Either it's blessing with Jesus or it's suffering and torment apart from Jesus. The beginning of verse 10 says, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. In this verse, Peter's referencing false teachers using similar language to verses 1 through 3 from last week. The lust of defiling passion is similar to sensuality in verse 2. And those who despise authority is similar to those who deny the master in verse 1. God's patient even with judgment of false teachers. Why? Why is God so patient? Why does it seem like he waits so long before there's justice? 2 Peter 3, 9 gives us the answer. 
It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's the heart of God. One pastor said, God never wants us to be discouraged or to wonder if he is faithful simply because he allows the godless to prosper for a season. What he wants is for us to remember that he graciously gives people plenty of time to repent before their judgment. We must be humbled by the the brevity of this life and the fact that final judgment is a sure thing. It will happen. We will all die. And when we do, we will have to give an account for how we lived this life. What have you done with the breath that God has given you? The same Jesus who came the first time to seek and save the lost will come a second time. And this time, it's not going to be on a humble donkey. It's going to be on a white horse. And it's a terrifying picture if you don't know him. He's coming back to judge. And the thoughts of judgment, the thoughts of condemnation and of punishment, it can be scary. But as followers of Christ, we must remember Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because that condemnation that we deserved, that wrath that was ours to endure, Jesus absorbed for you and me. He took it on himself on the cross. We see the wrath of God was satisfied and the love of God is displayed for what we deserved is not what we get. Do you hear what we were singing about beforehand? Jesus took our place. He took our unrighteousness upon himself. I didn't even tell Adam to like have the, the, the scriptures that we read together. I didn't even tell him that that, that was going to be like the main ending to this sermon is 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, through him, we might become the righteousness of God. That is the gospel in one verse. Jesus in my place. Jesus in your place. He gave us his own righteousness. The only way out from under punishment, the only way out from under condemnation is through Jesus Christ. On God simultaneously expressing his holiness and judgment and his love and pardon, Dr. Charles Cranfield says this, God, because in his mercy, he willed to forgive sinful men and being truly merciful, willed to forgive them righteously. That is, without in any way condoning their sin, proposed to direct against his own very self in the person of his son, the full weight of that righteous wrath, which we deserved. We deserved it. Jesus absorbed it. He took our punishment. He took our condemnation. He offers us his righteousness through faith alone. In his letter to the Philippians, the apostle Paul said this, be found in him, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Noah, Lot, Paul, Peter, they had no righteousness in and of themselves. They believed God, and it was credited to them as righteous. Paul said that we need to be found in him. Those two words have eternal weight. In Christ. There are two types of people in the world. There are people who are in Christ, and there are people who resist Christ. You're in Christ, or you're outside of Christ. The godly or the ungodly. That's it. There's two types of people in the world. In Christ, or you reject Christ. Divine judgment awaits those who reject Christ, while grace upon grace awaits those who put their faith in Christ alone. So in one sentence, we can say that God is wholly just in the past, in the present, and in the future. And I'll close with this one quote from Pastor David Helm. God knows how to rescue his own while punishing the rebellious. It was that way in the ancient days of Israel's history. It was true for those dwelling in Peter's day, and it will be true for those living at the end of all time. May the warning of imminent judgment spur us on to share this glorious good news of grace and mercy in Jesus. And may we not lose hope, brothers and sisters in Christ, that God will punish the wicked and rescue the righteous, both for his glory. For we are saved by Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus, from Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word. And we're humbled by your word. This is not an easy passage to read. It's not an easy passage to understand. But it is necessary. It's not an easy pill to swallow when we think about condemnation, when we think about judgment. We just praise you and we thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I pray that if there is any person in this room tonight or online or listening in a podcast in the future that does not have a personal relationship with you by faith, Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes to the glorious good news of your gospel, to how you are so patient, and to how you love, and to how you have provided a way for us to experience joy in life now and rescue from impending judgment. Lord, I pray that we would live our lives in such a way that every person that we see and interact with, we would see them as an eternal soul. That every person that we see and interact with in our families and our friends, at school or at work, every person will spend eternity either with you or apart from you. I pray that we would 
be bold to open up our mouths and to share the glorious good news that you love us and you provided a way out and that you absorbed the wrath of God in our place, Jesus. It's in your powerful name that we pray. Amen.